You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. It's Joe McGonigal in the Slice of MIT Alumni Books podcast. I'm joined by Heba Buakar, an assistant professor in the Urban Planning Program at Columbia Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. Uh, she is a master's in city planning alum of MIT from 2005. And her book, For the War Yet to Come, Planning Beirut's Frontiers, published by Stanford University Press in September 2018. The book examines Beirut's many complexities in Beirut's peripheries, war and peace, arrested development and growth, destruction and construction, home and displacement are intimately entangled, writes Buakar. Well, Hiba Buakar, thanks for joining me. Tell us why this book now, what inspired it, and how has it been received so far? This book was actually uh, 15 years in the making, but it's entitled For the War Yet to Come, and so the book comes out at a critical moment in which the future, as we imagined it before in many cities in the global south and global north, is actually being contested, especially as we reach unprecedented numbers of conflict and the climate refugees, and at the moment in which we are told that we kind of have less than 15 years to do something about climate change before we are all doomed. I've been working on this book since 2004, since I started my master's at MIT. So the book examines the production of everyday spaces like master plans, zoning ordinances, housing and real estate markets, infrastructure production in contested geographies. And, and the field research is basically based in Beirut, Lebanon. But then the book theorizes from Beirut to think about contested spaces elsewhere. The book interrogates, and specifically in Lebanon, it interrogates the underlying logics that make phrases like planning lacks uh, planning and order a common sentiment in Beirut. People always talk about like how the city is not planned, it's unplanned, impossible to plan. So taking that seriously and trying to under- interrogate what is actually happening on the ground. And I show in this book that such a feeling develops when the specters of war are always present, like war is uh, always on the horizon, and state structures are not clear, and public projects are often outsourced and privatized. However, what this book tries to emphasize um, specifically is that, that such conditions are neither exceptional nor restricted to the paradigm of cities in conflict, like, for example, Beirut and Belfast or Medellin. Assuming that these cities are exceptional reproduces the same assumptions that this book seeks to destabilize. And these assumptions are mostly rooted on how we think of the temporalities of planning and development interventions. For so long, the intertwined fields of planning and development have been configured, basically with an imagined future of progress. If we plan and think of how to make plans for the future, that we will somehow go always towards progress and embatterment. However, today we are at a global moment in which the imagined future in most places in the world is one of conflict and contestation characterized by ecological crisis, anticipated terror attacks, uh, and unprecedented influx of uh, refugees and migrants, which is the horizon that I, uh, that what I call the war yet to come in the book. As someone who was born and raised in Lebanon and lived through the Lebanese uh, civil war, this uh, book is also very personal. I mean, my family and I uh, experienced firsthand the geographies of war, including multiple force displacements. Like many people who grew up in such contexts, the fear of future wars continue to shape my family's everyday lives, uh, but also the promises of a better future of post-war that is yet to come. Although the war has ended in 1990, this future is, is, they're always waiting for this future that has not, quote-unquote, arrived. So through this book, I chose to write about violence in a place I call home, which is itself the landscape of many lost homes, which makes this book a, actually a quest that has been shaped my personal hist- by my personal history as much as it is a scholarly inquiry into the geographies of conflict and their aftermath. It was a great deal of your research. Your PhD was at Berkeley. 
Yes, actually, the, the first part of the research started when I was doing my master's degree at MIT. I was in the international development track at the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, and I was wondering, like, why there were so many vacant housings in the periphery of Beirut. So that was just a regular, like, research question. But then when I, when I went to do my field research for my master's thesis, I started learning that the answer for the why there were vacant apartments does not lie in housing markets or just uh, basic ideas of, of why apartments are vacant, but that there are complex stories about war displacement, what the government decided, what kind of compensation policies they decided to do. They, for example, they opted for compensation money. They wanted people to, quote-unquote, go back to where they come from, basically disappear from the city after they've lived there for more than 20 years. Uh, so instead of giving them relief compensation packages, they, they wanted them to just go back to their villages. And so I start there, I start learning about how to understand the housing and real estate markets at the time. After the war, you have to understand the war, the displacement, what happened, what kind of policies, and more importantly, the role that religious political organizations that used to be militias during the war ended up playing after the war. And this is key because usually these are not actors that we focus on in our research, whether on planning, on urbanism, because usually we divide our interests or the actors into public and private. So it's clear what's the state, it's clear who's working outside the state or who's private. But these actors, actually, they are the state and they are outside the state. Together, they form the parliament and the government in the Lebanon, and at the same time, they operate outside it. And some of them have military structures. Then this started becoming like a big interest. I went ahead and continued doing this kind of research uh, at Berkeley, developing it much more and on these issues. So the lines are more blurred in Beirut, you'd say, between, between state and, and those religious political organizations? Yeah. Usually uh, when, when people work or talk about like, uh, countries like Lebanon and they want to understand the state, they usually like, there are all these like, descriptions, especially in development studies, like a failed state, a weak state, a hybrid state. You, see, you hear about all these categories of states, but actually if you study how things are functioning on the ground, which is where I come from, I do an ethnography of spatial practices, you realize that actually you start thinking about how the same act, for example, I work on four political organizations, the most famous people who are in the US will be most famous with, with Hezbollah, but then I also work on the Progressive Socialist Party, which is the political party of a Druze minority religious group, and the Sunni Future Movement, and as well as uh, other parties that are associated with the Maronite Church. And you start seeing that these actors, many of their members are elected to the parliament, they together form the state, but then they also operate as charities and military organizations and in other kind of many, many other formats like social services outside the state. And so it becomes very difficult to just uh, categorize them as either public and private and to really understand them in the traditional way we understand who's public and who's private. But also they debunk not only that, they also make us rethink what is market, what is uh, public interest, and also what is the government, what's insurgency, right? Because many of the wars we see is that some of factions of these, some factions of, of these entities end up participating in wars related to the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict or to the regional Sunni-Shia conflict or even issues related to the global war on terror that is started by the U.S. and its allies. It becomes very complicated, and then trying to understand how they shape space and their geographies is we have to figure out ways on how to study that. I like the way you put it. You say this research required a flexible methodology, particularly with those blurred lines. You said there was no tape recording allowed frequently and no uh, note-taking and so forth. Talk about the, some of the strictures on, on gathering data. 
in general, people who work on contested areas or sites of conflict and violence, it's very difficult to take pictures or put a voice recorder and tell people, okay, tell me the stories. Because, yes, this is a project about housing and infrastructure and, you know, things that you think people should be able to talk about. But actually, these are very much political projects, right? So access to shelter, security, where you live are all also in the context of, like, Lebanon are political questions, too. So you cannot just put a voice recorder and ask people to just say it. It will just stop them from being able to say anything. Also, uh, because of security reasons, you cannot take pictures in, in different ways. And first, very often, if you just try to point uh, your camera or your phone, then you have many people surrounding you asking you, why are you taking pictures? Who are you an agent for, etc. It's a very like contested area. People are very scared about who, why you are taking pictures, etc. And this is common in sites that have experienced violence. You know, people are worried. So uh, these organizations, religious organizations, also want to control about who does what. So very often they won't allow you, or it becomes like a whole permitting where they have to send people with you to take pictures. It becomes really difficult. And people also, in terms of voice recording, as I said, are not comfortable being voice recorded. They're afraid this will come back and haunt them. So you're basically working in an environment where you can't take pictures, where you can't take voice recordings. The only thing you can take is notes. And you have to be very flexible because sometimes a door opens for you. Someone agrees to give you documents or let you see the documents in their office, like building permits and stuff, only to realize that within one hour someone has intervened and they're like, just you, you can't see this anymore. It happened to me. Like, just close all the files. Get, that's not going to happen anymore. And you don't know exactly why or who felt threatened by what. You cannot go into these kind of sites knowing like exactly, oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is my plan because that's not how it's going to work. You have to be very flexible. Um, and so I have in my book pictures and images, but it, but it was a very interesting process. I mean, mass, all my images do not have people because I cannot take the risk of having people's faces show as the book is titled for the warrior to come. You don't know what happens in the future, so you don't want anyone to be able to be tagged in these photos. The most of the note-taking is actually me going back to my car or going back to uh, after leaving the interview or my observation and writing down notes because also people are afraid of speaking. Other things also are like gender, like how people take, like, being a woman in such spaces, many of these spaces, especially spaces of experts and expertise and former militiamen are all male-dominated spaces. And of course, you had to negotiate also that kind of a woman researcher coming in and the way they would construct these spaces or the way they would go about the interview are very much, I was very aware of that too. And I had to also be flexible in terms of what kind of questions I ask and how to frame them, when to be provocative. So you, you really have to be very flexible in the way you approach uh, everything and very mindful of the context that, that each of these people you're talking with are you know, like they're operating in. You're writing about a country within a region that is perpetual anxiety now for, for mm. the war yet to come and and for you know the the turmoil to come. And just one way to take your readers into that, you talk about real estate a lot. You know, Americans are used to seismic prevention in building construction in California or thicker walls in Florida. You write about kind of mortar-proof and bulletproof apartment buildings in Beirut. What is shopping for real estate like for a typical family in, in Beirut? The context in which people talk about bunkers, it was definitely after the end of the Civil War where like, the territorial wars between these religious political organizations, for example, one of the developers 
told me in this negotiation they thought of building their buildings in an area where the, uh, the other religious group did not want to build, like bunkers, i.e. very like thick concrete walls that you, it's very, very hard to destroy in the event that a war is to happen between these two groups. But this is not very uncommon logic. I mean, as a, as a person who grew up in the Civil War and if anyone who's been through war or lived through war, people always think about what is the safest place in that apartment they buy in case something happens. And so you just have, usually it's the corridors inside because there's several wars that separate you. So it's a, people think about space that way. Maybe in a way many people, like you're saying, and uh, they will think differently. Like they will think about where, where is the safest place in the case of a hurricane or fracture in, in California. But in Lebanon, they think about it more in, in, in the case of snipers or in the case of the violence, where is the safest place. So that's true. Also, many buildings have uh, that use the basement for, uh, for that. But in terms of shopping right now, this is, not, uh, this is related, but it's actually making me think of another thing, which is a very contested where you buy apartment in Lebanon right now, because there are all these, especially after in the past decades, several towns have made it impossible for a Muslim person or family to be able to rent or buy from a Christian family and for, for vice versa, or for Druze family to buy here, or for a Muslim family to buy there. And so first, many towns actually issued something that is illegal, but they still issued like regulations that will stop that from happening. So they will say, like, even if you want to sell it, we will not sign your paperwork. One of the parliamentaries in Lebanon proposed this law in which bans uh, land sales between Muslims and Christians for 15 years in the name of coexistence. So it's basically promoting segregation in the name of coexistence. This is what is very common right now, is that people cannot just, oh, I want to live in this neighborhood, then I'm just going to rent or buy there. This is not how it functions. A lot of political and sectarian issues that come to play, especially in the areas that are heated, you know, these peripheries that have torn frontiers where it's still mixed, but people are fear of the other coming and taking over. This shapes somehow the logic of apartment hunting. Many of my friends or, or family members who like are thinking of buying apartments as a young generation, they're like, oh, this is a nice area. It's close to my work. And their family, you will hear their families, no, 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 you can't buy there. We cannot get to you if, if a war is to come, you know, no. And you weren't there where when we, were, we had to be displaced based on our religion from this area. So no, go to a different area where it's, will it be a bit safer. These are the things you will hear with people while apartment hunting. Right now, the market is stagnant in Lebanon. The economy is really in a dire situation. So there isn't much of buying and renting going on. I don't know how that is being affecting, but this is the logic that have dominated the past decade. Uh, what else could be written about this topic? And I'm curious what you think of bringing some of these questions to bear on Syria. The field of urban planning and development is very much a future-oriented uh, uh, field. And we have to think about it right now, not only in conflict, as I said earlier, also when we think about climate change or what's going on, to, what's going to happen to Miami or New York or what's going to happen to other places in the world. We have to think about what does it mean for our field to operate in a different kind of future. So for the longest time, the future that was imagined for modernization in the 50s and 60s and even a bit before was that it's always, as I said, that always is going to be progress and somehow it's going to be for the better. But, I mean, as we consumed all the resources and as we stare the face of, like, extreme uh, climate change, we have to rethink about that. So this is another area of important research in the field I work in. And how to think about displaced populations and access to housing. Because another kind of myth is that refugees go back home. That somehow, like in Lebanon, they wanted everyone, all the war displaced, to go back home, just give them like $5,000 and let them go back home, which no one did because they've been living 
and displacement for 30 years. Same with refugees. I mean, if you look at most of the refugee crisis that happened in the world, most of the refugees end up creating homes in the new, new places because wars really take a long time before they quote-unquote end, if they ever end. And so to rethink of what does it mean when we talk about refugees and housing and, how, and host communities. And uh, I mean, this is also a big debate, not only in research, but also in practice, especially for like United Nations and aid organizations. For example, the Syrian refugee crisis, quote-unquote, in Lebanon is an urban crisis. Uh, one in every four, every four people in Lebanon is a, is a refugee right now, so more than 25% almost. And most of the people live in urban areas, so we're not talking about refugee camps anymore. So what does that mean, you know? Uh, what, how do we think about uh, urban context where 25% of the population are refugees? How can we think of the housing question and what, when aid becomes development? All of these are important. Now, how does this come, burn, uh, come to bear upon Syria? Of course, this is a project that thinks up from the peripheries of Beirut. And that's critical because, I mean, after the end of the war, all the focus on Lebanon was the reconstruction of its downtown. Uh, it became this fancy place. A lot of this possession was, happened in the name of like, post-war reconstruction of downtown Beirut, the project called Solidaire. And many people were not allowed to keep their spaces, their houses. And anyways, this company took over and they rebuilt everything. But for the most part, it wasn't rebuilt for your average middle income or low income Lebanese. So it's mostly like right now stands as a ghost town because most of the people who bought apartments at that time, at, at the time, were from the people from the Gulf who were able to buy very high-end apartments. And so right now it stands mostly as a ghost town. Uh, and I'm talking more about shifting the lands from this kind of massive, high-investment, um, manicured uh, post-war reconstruction project to think about the other spaces, like the peripheries and what happened there because of, of these kind of big post-war reconstruction projects that took all the money and what happened in the peripheries where the people have been displaced to. Another thing I want to talk about just for a second is that although, although the, the, the logic of, of future wars is not only... Um, uh, in Beirut, uh, for example, think about after September 11 in New York or the gang violence in Chicago. I mean, we, 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 we are not very aware often of what's going on, but many of our cities and spaces in the United States are also being shaped within these expectations that or fear uh, that yet another, another September 11 is going to come or another gang violence is going to come. And then how our spaces, uh, how we go through airports, how, how our public, public spaces are being monitored, et cetera, are also justified in the name of this kind of terror yet to come, violence yet to come, gang violence yet to come. And so to also think about it, not only in spaces like Beirut, but also in, in spaces in Paris and Magadisho and Barcelona and New York, et cetera, how this fear ends up shaping our present. And in the name of that fear, we do not contest these geographies that get produced, geographies of fear in the present. And so this is also an area to keep pushing in terms of research and practice, practice and policy. Can you talk about anything from your research that was pleasantly surprising about your, your home or gave you hope or, or might be a, a model for uh, urban design in war-torn regions? One, one of the things about doing this research is that um, it made many places that I thought were intimate or people who are places that I grew up in that I really didn't, I realized I didn't really know. So there was a lot that I, I knew, a lot about, I learned about how people work together, about the reasons. So despite the fact that maybe the war yet to come is a dystopic narrative, uh, it also shows how people still, despite everything, despite the wars and the violence and the displacement, are still trying to work together. They, in the end, they st these are mixed areas. People are still living in, in them. They're not building walls. They are always negotiating these contours of, of uh, conflict. And, but at the same time, they're, they're still trying to make homes 
in these places. And so there's, uh, despite the overarching narrative of the war yet to come, you still feel a lot of resili resiliency in the people and how they actually try to make life in, in mixed uh, religious areas despite the episodes of uh, violence. In terms of hope is that while we have to think about the futures of urban planning and development and how to think about the interventions in the present through rethinking it, that future, actually uh, one of the important things that emerged from my work in Lebanon is how different groups are trying to use the tools of planning and development, but rather than just to forecast the future of 2030 and 2050 that may not come, is actually to use these tools to open up conversations between people beyond the future of, of sectarianism or the future of othering and think about shared areas or public spaces, how we think about uh, greening the city, how we think about the garbage crisis that plagued Beirut. So try to use the tools basically as a way to start opening up conversations between people who may not have had these conversations with, with each other before. And I thought this is, uh, and I'm part of this conversation, and I thought this is a very interesting way in which we can take this information and tools that we've developed and designed, et cetera, but to use them in a different way and to open up futures that people thought might not have been possible and to think about the future in Beirut, for example, beyond uh, being, fe being fearful of a next war and thinking of, like, now how can we manage the city and live together in a better environment or better public spaces for children. Tell me what else you're reading right now. As a true MIT <laughs> Berkeley person, I'm reading actually right now on sedimentation uh, from the natural sciences and its relation to global change. And of course, that's not my field, but that's because I think it's very much relevant to the new projects I'm working on, which also related to conflict, but try to think about how sedimentation can be thought of in the social sciences and thinking about urbanization and open space, urbanization and urban space and alternative futures. And so this is what I've been reading about for now in terms of uh, for research. Uh, and I'm trying to put together a list on uh, climate change, utopias, and dystopias in cities. And that would be my next reading list. Well, the book is For the War Yet to Come, Planning Beirut's Frontiers by Heba Buakar, mm -hmm. MCP, class of 2005, and is published by Stanford University Press last year. Professor Buakar, thanks for joining me. Thank you.